So, as I said, it's, it's good to be with you, and today we're going to cover Luke, um, verse, uh, Luke chapter 9, verses 21 to 36. And I've kind of titled this message, um, Jesus Talks About the Cost of Discipleship and is Glorified. And this first section is a really short section. It's just the first two verses of this passage. Let's read them together. Uh, and he straightly charged them and commanded them to tell no man that thing, saying, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected of the elders and the chief priests and scribes and be raised the third day. Now, what thing are we talking about? Last time, toward the end of our time, we talked about what Jesus said, or what Peter, Jesus asked the disciples, Who do you say that I am? And Peter said, you are the Christ of God. Now there's another passage where uh, this is mentioned, and then Jesus proceeds to say, you are Peter, and on this rock will I build my church. And a lot of people think that he's saying he's going to build his church on Peter. And certainly there's a, there's a level of application that you can make to that. But I think a lot of times, even in our evangelical circles, we go too far with that. Because I believe that the actual rock upon which Jesus is building the church is upon the declaration and the truth of the statement that Jesus is the Son of God. Because the church is not built on any human being. Uh, we sing that song, the church's one foundation is Jesus Christ, her Lord. And that is who indeed uh, the church is built upon. So we have Jesus... Coming from this point, and it's kind of a high point because the disciples are acknowledging who Jesus is. They're saying, you're the Son of God, and we know that, that you are, are the true uh, one that we should be following. And then Jesus says um, this, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected of the elders and the chief priests and scribes and be slain and be raised the third day. Now, it was mentioned in the breaking of bread uh, this morning about the road to Emmaus. And I actually preached on that last Sunday in my church for Easter. And one of the interesting things about it is the people that are walking along the road to Emmaus, when Jesus draws near to go with them, they know the story. They know the physical events that occurred. And as they're going into detail with Jesus, because Jesus asked them, what happened? Not because he doesn't know, because he knew more better than any of us what happened those three days. But what he was trying to do is he was trying to establish a connection, trying to let us know that he wants a relationship with us. That it's not sufficient just to have one-way communication, that God wants an intimate, individual relationship with each of us. And so then... Jesus, of course, goes through the whole prophets and gives everything concerning himself and how he must die and then later be glorified. And this is something that he had told the disciples at least three times. There's three recorded times in Scripture when Jesus says, hey, I'm going to die. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to be handed over to the leaders. They're going to beat me up. They're going to kill me. And then I'm going to rise again the third day. And so, 
And so this is um, uh, the first time in Luke that we see this. And it must have stunned the disciples. Because their understanding to this point, and I think even as they went into the triumphal entry, was that Jesus was speaking more of earthly things. I tend to believe that that is um, one reason why Judas betrayed him, because he thought that, that Jesus was going to overthrow the earthly Roman Empire when he realized that wasn't the case, and he realized that the leaders wanted to kill Jesus. He agreed to bind, or that he want, they wanted to arrest Jesus. He agreed to bind, bind him over to them. And then when he realized they were going to kill him, he said, I betrayed the innocent blood. But as we look at this, he says, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected of the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be slain and then raised the third day. And there's a lot just in this verse. And we, we alluded, again, I go back to the breaking of bread when we talked about Isaiah 53. When we talked about it pleased the Lord to bruise him. And how everything that Jesus went through was part of a plan that Isaiah had prophesied thousands of years before Jesus walked the earth. Um, and I just think about how much this is a cornerstone of our faith. You know, there's a lot of faiths out there. There's a lot of religious leaders out there. And for most of them, you can go to their tomb and you can see where their body is laid. But when Jesus rose from the dead, three days after he died, an angel rolled the stone away. And when I was a little kid, I used to think, well, that was so Jesus could get out. But you know, as I've gotten older, I've realized Jesus probably walked right through that stone. And he was probably already gone when the angel rolled away the stone. But why did the angel roll away the stone and sit on it? He rolled away the stone so that the women and later the disciples, and even us, um, by some tradition we believe that um, we found the garden tomb, that you can go and you can look into it and you can see that Jesus is not there. He's not there because he's alive. And this is such an important part of why we meet every Sunday. You know, I know that we meet for an hour um, around the death of Jesus, and there's nothing sweeter than realizing that Jesus died for our sins and took a burden that we could not take for ourselves. But one thing that I have um, been burdened about a lot is that I don't think we focus enough on the resurrection during the breaking of bread. Because without the resurrection, the emblems don't mean anything. Because if Jesus is still dead in the grave, then there's no remembering him until he comes. But because he's alive, because he came once, because he died, because he rose, and because he lives, we know he's coming again. And so when he said, do this until I come, we have the confidence to believe that he will come. Could somebody look up and read 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 3 and 4. 1 Corinthians 15, 3 and 4. Um, this is uh, the words of Paul concerning the resurrection, or, or concerning the gospel of Jesus Christ. 
So if someone could read that when they arrive there, um, just speak up nice and loud so we can all hear you. First uh, Corinthians 15, 3 and 4. For I delivered unto you first of all that which I also received, how that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day according to the scriptures. All right, and if you continue on in that passage, which I encourage you to do sometime, you will note that uh, it goes on for Paul to talk about all the people that Jesus appeared to. First, he appeared to the women. Then he appeared to uh, Peter by himself. Uh, and he appeared to the eleven together. Uh, obviously, minus Judas, who had sadly hung himself. And then he appeared to up to 500 people at once. And one of the people that I hope was in that group of 500 was the centurion who was at the cross that day. Because after all this had occurred, he said these words, Truly this was the Son of God. And it's my hope that he found out after the resurrection that not only was he the Son of God, but he is the Son of God and will be the Son of God forever. Having no beginning and no end. And so, and so we have this setup. Where um, Jesus is saying, I'm going to suffer. And then he goes into our second point, which is talking about what the Christian life will cost us. And that is in Luke 9, 23 to 27. And I have to say that I was, um, my ears perked up when uh, Mike suggested take my life and let it be because um, that was a great lead-in to what we're talking about. And uh, in verse 23, he said to them all, If any man will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whosoever will save his life shall lose it. But whosoever will lose his life for my sake, the same shall save it. For what is man advantaged if he will gain the whole world and lose himself or be cast away? For whosoever shall be ashamed of me and of my words, of him shall the Son of Man be ashamed, when he shall come in his own glory and in his Father's and of the holy angels. But I tell you of a truth that there be some standing here which shall not taste death till they see the kingdom of God. And so Jesus follows up the fact that he is going to suffer with the fact that the Christian life will cost us something. You know, I have a well-meaning friend that will often post things about how God doesn't want us to suffer, how he wants us to live an abundant life. And I believe that he wants us to live an abundant life, for Jesus said, I am come that they might have life, and that they might have it more abundantly. But I've also come to believe through personal experience and through reading of the word that suffering is part of an abundant life. And why do I say that? Because if Jesus himself suffered for us, how can we expect to escape this world without suffering? 
I don't know how. Because Jesus suffered and he did nothing wrong. Like the man, the thief on the cross said, he did nothing amiss. And yet he's hanging there for our sins. And we know that he believed that because he cried out to Jesus later and said, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said, today you will be with me in paradise. And then um, Jesus is just saying, if any man will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. You know, often we, we think about dying for Christ as being the ultimate death, mar being martyred for the gospel. And there may come a day in our lifetimes when that may be the case. But I also think that there's a practical day-by-day -day thing of death that we as Christians need to embrace. Because when we um, choose Christ, when we put him in charge, we have a different agenda than simply finding a good job to provide for our needs and living our life. I'm running into this a little bit with the, the job uh, coaching that I'm getting from the state. I've been looking for an outside vocation because I'm willing to be bivocational in my ministry. But I also want to make sure that whatever my secondary vocation is that it does not take away from the calling that I've been given to spread the gospel and to encourage the saints to walk worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that's something that the world does not understand. Um, I turned down a job possibility um, that would have been reasonably um, financially great. And I have to be honest and say it wasn't just because of the time commitment. It was also because I didn't think I had the aptitude to finish the training successfully and I didn't want them to waste their time. But beyond that, I know that I have to have something that complements what I'm doing so that the things that God has called me to, I will not, will not get lost in the shuffle. And Jesus said that um, the Lord knows the needs that we have that he will provide for our needs. And he's done that for me. Now, has he given me everything I wanted? No. Are there still things that I'm hoping will happen in the future that haven't happened yet? Absolutely. But I know that as long as I am at the center of God's will, I'm at the best place that I can be at this time. And then... Jesus said, for what is advantaged if he gained the whole world and lose himself or be cast away? You know, there's a lot of rich, miserable people in the world today. There's people with so much money they don't know what to do with it. There's, there's athletes who will sign contracts with one team over another because they get you know, two or three or maybe five million dollars more from one team than they would from the other. And that in and of itself is more money than I will probably ever see in my entire life. You have, but, but at the same token, I saw a, a story not too long ago 
about this organization that's set up for retired NFL players who have nothing to take care of themselves. Because no matter how much money you have, you can still outspend your resources. And so whatever God has given you, whether it's a little or a lot, we are um, required to be good stewards of it. And here's where the cost of discipleship comes in. For whosoever shall be ashamed of me and my words, of him shall the Son of Man be ashamed when he shall come in his own glory and in his Father's and of the holy angels. But I tell you the truth... Oh, okay. I just want to stop with that verse for a second. There's been a lot going on in the media the last two or three weeks about the state of Indiana because there was a law enacted whose original purpose was to give Christians the right and other religious people the right to exercise their religious beliefs as they conducted business. And the hate and the venom that has come from people that are not believers simply to those of us who disagree with their position in love has been surprising even to me. I shouldn't be surprised because the Bible says if the world hated me before you, it will hate you because you are my disciples. But it's been sobering to realize that that's here in the United States of America. But at the same time, if I were to be quiet and not say controversial things and not speak the whole truth, then God would be very displeased with me. And you, you may think that you can live the life that you want and still call yourself a Christian, still go to church every Sunday, but God calls us to a high level of living. And so the question before us today is, are we ashamed of Jesus? Because if we are ashamed of Jesus, then the Son of Man, Jesus, will be ashamed of us. And it is hard, because we shouldn't stir up controversy for the sake of it. But I also know that a lot of Christians are baited. People ask Christians their view on something, knowing what that view will be, so that they can stir up a whirlwind of controversy. Just because someone is sticking to a definite standard. And just because people hold a biblical standard, they're being called haters. The Bible says that we're supposed to speak the truth in love, but it doesn't say to abandon the truth. In Proverbs it says, Faithful are the wounds of a friend, but the kisses of an enemy are deceitful. I could give you kisses all day long, 
and tell you how great you are and how great this world is. But if at the end of the day you all ended up in hell, then I would not have done my job. That's just the truth. And then Jesus says, but I tell you the truth, there will be some standing here which shall not taste death till they see the kingdom of God. And there's a lot of different ways you could interpret that verse, but I think the context tells us, and we'll get to the, the next point very shortly, but first, could we um, uh, look at uh, Titus chapter 2, verses 11 and 12. Titus 2, 11 and 12. So that's our mandate. And as the world gets farther and farther away from biblical principles, it becomes harder and harder to do the right thing. But if we remember that a lot of these letters were written to people that were under dictatorships, and yes, we may be progressing toward that in this country, but we are still one of the most free nations in the world. And so as we stand here today and we say, well, that's pretty impossible to do, may we realize that God was telling them to do this to the Roman government. He was telling them to do this to other world dictators. He wasn't telling them to do this in the context of a place where they got to choose their leaders. How blessed I feel to be in the United States today and to be able to have a say, no matter how small, in who will lead my city, my state, and my country. And what I have to say next may offend some people, and I'm sorry if it does, but I think that even though the Bible says that the world will wax worse and worse and it's true and we're seeing it, I think that Christians often, unknowingly perhaps, contribute to the problem. Because we sit down and we keep our mouth shut. And we don't have a place in the public discourse in the public debate. Now, I will admit to you that there are places where you get to a point in a conversation, like on Facebook or whatnot, where you know nobody's going to, to agree and where continuing to have that conversation may mean nothing. But what did Paul do? When he was upholding the word of life, he went into the marketplace and he reasoned with the men there. So we need men and women who will go into the marketplace and who will reason from the moral standards of, of the absolutes of Scripture 
in the marketplace within reason, of course. Because the temptation there would be to neglect your job that you're being paid by your employer to do. And that's not a good testimony either. So balance in all things. The third part here is Jesus' transfiguration. Um, and this is, I think, gives us insight into verse 27 because verses 28 to 36 read as follows. And it came to pass about eight days after these sayings, he took Peter, John, and James and went up to a mountain to pray. And as he prayed, the fashion of his countenance was altered and his raiment was white and glistening. And behold, there talked with him two men, which were Moses and Elias, who appeared in glory and spoke of his decease, which he should accomplish at Jerusalem. But Peter and they that were with him were heavy with sleep. And when they awoke, they saw his glory and the two men that stood with them. And it came to pass as they departed from him, Peter said unto Jesus, Master, it is good for us to be here. Let us make three tabernacles, one for thee and one for Moses and one for Elias, not knowing what he said. And I, I love Peter because I see so much of myself in him. I, I've had so many open mouth, insert foot moments in my life. And, you know, I started talking when I was six months old. I, um, I said hello. And, I, you know, ever since then, I really haven't shut up since. And I know there are times when my parents really just wish that I would shut up. So I can relate to Peter saying foolish things. It's kind of interesting the ups and downs he goes through. Because he says, you're, you're the Christ, the Son of God. High point. Then Jesus says, I'm going to die. And in another gospel, it says right after Jesus said that, far be it from you, Lord, Peter says. And what does Jesus say to Peter? He says, get thee behind me, Satan. And then, after acknowledging that Jesus is the Son of God in this passage, a little while later, he sees Jesus and Moses and Elijah, and he says, let's build three tabernacles. So he still didn't get it. He still didn't understand that it's about Jesus' glory. And it says, when he thus spoke, there came a cloud that overshadowed them, and they feared as they entered into the cloud. And there came a voice out of the cloud saying, this is my beloved son, hear him. And when the voice was passed, Jesus was found alone. And they kept it close and told no man in those days any of the things which they had seen. And there's, again, another gospel that says that Jesus told them not to tell anyone until after he had risen. But can you imagine what Peter must have been feeling after 
that he's like, let's build these tabernacles. And then God comes out of heaven and says, this is my beloved son. Hear him. Again, referring to another gospel that talks about this event, it words it this way. It says that after this was done, they saw no man but Jesus only. I have a dear friend in grace and truth who will often bring us to that passage during the breaking of bread. Because the breaking of bread especially, every service is, but especially the breaking of bread is so that we will see no man but Jesus only. And I think of some of the mega church pastors and televangelists in the world today and they fare pretty well. Sometimes I find myself thinking, what if I had a broader audience? What if I had more finances like they do? But then I hear some of their messages and I realize that they're not telling the whole truth. They're giving good messages that itching ears want to hear. So that they'll keep coming back. They're talking about the love of God, which is true. But you know, this past Good Friday, when I watched The Passion of the Christ again, I was reminded Jesus didn't hang on that cross, bleeding and dying, and rejected by God so that I could live a normal life. So that I could continue living the life I'm living. No, he did it because he wanted me to have a better life. A life that was free from sin. Am I 100% free from sin? No, I won't be until glory. But I have the power to refuse sin like I never had before. And I have the immediate forgiveness of sin when I cry out to him and realize that I have made a mistake that I have sinned against him so that he can make me right before God again. Yes, he hung on the cross as an expression of love, but it was so much more than that. He hung on the cross to show us that the judgment that we so richly deserve was taken on him so that we could have the righteousness of God. 2 Corinthians 5 so I ask you are you living a Holy Spirit filled life have you trusted Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior because if you haven't nothing that I've said today will matter last week we celebrated Resurrection Sunday and the true hope of the resurrection is that I can live in resurrection power today. I've been promised eternal life. And it's not something that starts, as I thought when I was a little kid, that starts at death. It's something that starts now. Jesus said, He who believeth in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. And he that liveth and believeth in me shall never die. 
One of my favorite songs is Christ Returneth. I love the last verse because it says, O joy, O delight, should we go without dying? No sickness, no sadness, no tears, or no crying. Caught up in a moment with our Lord into glory. That's how I want to go. I always say, I either want to go that way or when I'm 100 years old in my sleep. I really don't want to suffer death. The physical aspect of death still does scare me at times, even though I have the promise of heaven. But I also know that when God gives us physical trials, he gives us the grace to go through them. It can be easy to say, I don't know how Mr. Feuder goes through all the struggles that he does with his cancer. But I do know that we both serve a God who said to Paul and says to us today, my grace is sufficient for you, for my strength is made perfect in your weakness. And those aren't just words on a page. Those are words that if you trust Jesus Christ, you will learn are true. Because you'll get a chance to live them. And Paul said it this way, all those who live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. Well, Peter didn't forget that experience with the transfiguration. Let's read what he says about it in 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 16 to 18. 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 16 to 18. And then I have a couple of illustrations and we'll be done. And 18. So Peter's reflecting upon this and he's talking about the promises of God. Because there will be people that say, where is the promise of his coming? But you know what? One of the reasons Jesus hasn't come back yet is because maybe there's somebody here in this room right now who has not yet done business with God. You may think, well, maybe I can sit on a fence. Well, there are no fences in the kingdom of God. Either you're inside the door or you're outside the door. And Jesus is the door. There's a little song that goes like this. One door and only one and yet its sides are two. I'm on the inside. On which side are you? 
I'm on the inside. Because I did business with God many years ago. It doesn't mean that he still doesn't poke and prod me from time to time to get me on the right track. It's not saying that I've arrived or been perfect. But as Paul said, leaving those things which are behind, I press on toward the mark of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. My question to you is, are you doing that? Are you leaving the path behind? Are you pressing forward to the mark? I just wanted to leave you with these couple illustrations. The first one deals with our first point about Jesus' death and resurrection and its significance. Donald Gray Barnhouse writes, I was driving with my children to my wife's funeral where I was to preach the sermon. Which, by the way, I don't know if I would ever be able to do that. To preach my wife's funeral. I don't know if I'd be able to preach a funeral. I was actually asked a few weeks ago by a friend, if I die before you, will you preach my funeral? And I told him, I don't even know if I'll be able to talk at your funeral. But I'll do my best. But this man says, I was driving with my children to my wife's funeral where I was to preach the sermon. As we came into one small town, there strode down in front of us a truck that came to stop before a red light. It was the biggest truck I ever saw in my life and the sun was shining on it at just the right angel angle that took its shadow and spread it across the snow in the field beside it. As the shadow covered the field, I said, look, children, at the truck and look at the shadow that... Uh, <clears throat> at the shadow. If you had to be run over, which would you rather be run over by? Would you rather be run over by the truck or by the shadow? My youngest child said the shadow couldn't hurt anybody. That's right, I continued, and death is a truck. But the shadow is all that ever touches the Christian. The truck ran over the Lord Jesus. Only the shadow has gone over your mother. Yes, there is grief when someone dies, Christian or not. We are not called not to sorrow, but we're called to sorrow as though not as those who have no hope, but as those who have hope. And then, just this final word on the cost of discipleship. It says, at the close of life, the question will not be, how much have you gotten, but how much have you given? Not how much have you won, but how much have you done? Not how much have you saved, but how much have you sacrificed? It will be how much have you loved and served, not how much were you honored. And that was by a man named Nathan C. Schaefer. My prayer for you today is that you will understand afresh and be thankful afresh for the sacrifice that Jesus made for you and the true cost of discipleship. We still have much to be thankful for in the United States. 
The worst you'll probably experience this week if you stand up for Jesus is ridicule of a verbal sort. But it is getting worse. And we need to be prepared. Not as some have the attitude of hanging tighter to our chairs and just hoping that the rapture comes quickly, although I do. But as mighty warriors who will shine brighter into the darkness, who will be bolder in the face of more persecution. Because when the disciples in Acts chapter 4 were flogged and imprisoned, after raising the layman and giving Jesus the glory for it, and told not to preach in his name, they go back to the upper room, surely for encouragement, surely to recharge. And you would think that they would pray, Lord, take this persecution from us. But they didn't. They said, Lord, fill us with boldness to continue preaching your word. And they went right back to preaching the word. And with the exception of John, 10 of the original 11, by tradition, lost their lives as martyrs to the gospel. Tradition tells us that Peter himself watched his own wife die before they killed him. And then when they killed him, they nailed him on the cross upside down because he was not worthy. He did not feel worthy to die in the same way. As his master. You know what excites me about that story? Because that same Peter was the one who said, I do not know the man. And yet God didn't give up on him. God allowed him to become a great leader in his church. Not because of who Peter was, but because of who God is. And if you've ever disappointed the Lord, as I know we all have, know that he can still use you. Know that there's still hope. Because he can turn your weakness into strength. And what people don't understand a lot of times is that when they perceive no weakness, they can't be used. Because... There's no room for God to work. If you have it all figured out, there's nothing for God to help you with. If you want to be judged on your own merit, you don't have the privilege of being judged on Jesus' merit. But if you allow yourself to be judged on your own merit, prepare to face the consequences. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. He hung on that cross, died, was buried, and was raised again the third day so that you would not have to experience that death. Experience the death I will never experience because he experienced God turning away from him. And in turn, God says to me, I will never leave you nor forsake. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for the power of your word. We thank you for who you are. We thank you for the prophets who were faithful to you. 
You think of Jeremiah, who didn't really have a very vital ministry as we count ministries. Many people did not believe. He was known as the weeping prophet. And he had a lot to weep about. But he stayed faithful. We think of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego who were told to bow before the fiery furnace. And they said, we cannot do this, O king. And if you throw us in the furnace, our God is able to deliver us. But even if he does not, we still won't bow. And when we think of so many modern-day martyrs, Lord, we don't know their names, but you do. They're written in the Lamb's Book of Life. They've prevailed by the blood of Christ and by the word of their testimony. And we ask that you would bless the families who are dealing with the loss of their martyred loved ones and that you would bless those who are in jail right now for the gospel. We pray for our brothers and sisters in chains. And we ask if it be your will that you would change the hearts of the dictators in those lands for the king's heart is in the hand of the Lord and he turns it whithersoever he will and that if it be your will that you will release them so they can continue the work that you have for them but if you choose not to release them we pray that they would have grace that they would continue to be bold even in a prison cell as was our brother Paul we pray this in Jesus name Amen the Lord bless you and keep you the Lord make his face shine upon you and give you peace.